Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Red Hen Press, the largest and oldest nonprofit independent publishing company in Los Angeles. Red Hen Press publishes poetry, creative nonfiction, memoirs, and fiction including Unseen City by Amy Shearn, the latest Nervous Breakdown book club selection. Red Hen Press has also published best-selling work by Steve Almond, also a guest on this program in the past. Check out episode 513 for his discussion on bad stories, an in-depth look at how America came to elect Donald Trump. They've also published work by Fear of Flying author Erica Jong and Erasure author Percival Everett. Red Hen Press focuses on diversity in publishing, offering 10 annual publication awards, and they accept unagented submissions of manuscripts. For more information, visit redhen.org. And best of all, get 40% off your order for a limited time using the offer code OTHERPPL over at HTTP slash slash shop dot aer dot io slash red underscore hen underscore press hey everybody how are you what's happening to you what's happening out there my name is brad listy i'm in los angeles it's good to be with you and uh, it's good to breathe. The air has reverted to some semblance of normal here in California, or at least where I am. I can breathe again, and I'm happy about that. <laughs> Amy Shearn is my guest. She has a new novel out called Unseen City, available now from Red Hen Press. Unseen City is the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club and has had one for the past decade. If you want to sign up for the book club, just go to TheNervousBreakdown.com. Amy Shearn is the author of multiple books. Her other novels include The Mermaid of Brooklyn and another one called How Far Is the Ocean From Here. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times slate poets and writers the millions and other publications she's a senior editor at forge and the new york fiction editor for joyland magazine so very pleased to have amy on the program we had a good time 
and that is coming up. I do have some quick orders of business. First of all, just a reminder that other people gear is available. You can get a t-shirt, super soft, a sweatshirt, a tank top. Just go to otherppl.com, click on the t-shirt in the left sidebar. I also want to remind you that I am blogging on a daily basis in a uh, tediously maximal and self-revealing way over at bradpocalypse.blogspot.com. That is happening between now, or it started uh, back on September 8th, I believe, and I'm going to go until Inauguration Day. The blog is called Notes from the Fall, and you can uh, read that at bradpocalypse.blogspot.com. Finally, uh, don't forget, if you're out there listening and you want to send in a photo of where you are, just DM the show. Just DM the photo over at Twitter, at other PPL, or on Instagram. You can also email me the photo at letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let us know where you listen. It's a cool thing. Check out the show's Instagram, and you can see photos of where other listeners are listening. All right? So Amy Shearn is my guest. Her new novel, Unseen City, available now from Red Hen Press. An absolute delight talking with her, and I'm pleased to share this conversation with you now. This is the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, Unseen City. Here she is, folks. This is Amy Shern. There's plenty of terrible things about living in a dense urban environment, but this, you know, the way you're sort of forced to encounter all of your neighbors and and get to know them and the kind of community that can sort of be created out of, no, out of nowhere is it's actually really lovely. And I, you know, I'm not from here. My family's not around here. So I don't know. I feel like the people who water my plants when I'm out of town and my kids' emergency contacts, like it's all like an invented community that, um, that I forced to be in my community by chatting. I don't know. <laughs> But the question is, like, sometimes somebody, like, if you've got stuff to do, like, you're in a hurry. Like, I find myself, if I'm in a hurry, and I'm, like, racing, I'm walking out of the house, and I'm going somewhere, and then, I'll, like, my neighbor's there. Sometimes right. sometimes he'll want to chat, and I'll be like, I don't want to totally. be rude, but I got to go. And, like, I never know how to handle that transaction, like, how to, how to quickly, like, get myself out of it. Yeah, I understand that. Well, that is also another great thing about um, New York City is that also – everyone's slightly rude. So I feel like if you have an encounter where you're just kind of rude, uh, nobody, it doesn't phase anybody. You're just like, I gotta go. And they're like, fine. <laughs> we're, I don't know. I, I'm from the Midwest originally. And I feel like if you tried to pull that in the Midwest, people would be like, are you okay? What's, you know, I don't know. And they'd call your mom and be like, Amy seemed really stressed out. Is she okay? <laughs> um, and here nobody cares. So I think or maybe when I'm in a hurry, I offend everyone and they hate my guts. I think being like blunt in some contexts is good like that. You know, like I, like not being rigid, but like I, I would love to talk, yeah. but I, I got to go. People get that. Yeah. I think that's like New York polite, which people who are from other places get confused about it. And they think that New Yorkers are being rude, but I feel like actually saying, vocalizing your needs is actually uh, quite, quite a kindness. I think. So you've lived there how long again? What is it? Like 15, almost 16 years. 
So, yeah. and I was thinking about that because I've lived in Los Angeles close to that long, a little bit longer, but oh. I'm from the Midwest originally as well. And this is my adopted hometown. I think when you've lived someplace 15 plus years, you can start to call it your hometown. I think, like, I don't know what the cutoff is, but you're getting yeah, close. Yeah, what is the cutoff? I, I don't think of myself as a New Yorker, but I don't know. Wait, where are you from in the Midwest? No. Nope. we discussed no, Milwaukee and uh, and Indiana. I split time when I was a kid. Oh, that's that's legit Midwest. It's hardcore Midwest. I feel <laughs> that's like. hardcore. Um, but the point that I want to make with respect to Unseen City is, and I, I could be wrong on this, but I feel you having lived in Brooklyn um, in this book, becoming obviously curious about the city's history, like Brooklyn's history in particular. And I've been feeling the same way uh, about Los Angeles, maybe particularly so lately. I don't know if it's this amount of time I've lived here where suddenly it's like, wait, what the fuck happened here? Like, like, what what am I, what, like, I think maybe the first 10 or 15 years you're living someplace, you're just kind of getting to know it at surface level. And then once you maybe get a firm handle on that, you start to want to know what you're standing on and what what was here before and who was here before. Is that an accurate like yeah. depiction of what you went through as you were kind of like this idea was germinating for, for your novel? Yeah, that's such a good analysis of it because I hadn't really thought about why, you know, I became more interested in, in the history of the city, but I think that's exactly right. Yeah. I think at first you're just kind of getting your bearings. Um, and then also it probably has to do with the sort of stage of life that, that we're in, like we're getting, um, I feel like if I can assume that we're maybe about the same age, we're sort of getting to that. We're inching towards the genealogy stage. You know what I mean? Where all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, let me uh, look into my family's past. And and I feel like this is a it's a related city stage where you sort of start to become curious. And I think it has to do too with um, I mean, I really started thinking about this book. It took a long time to write, and I started writing it and researching it in 2013. And um, my then husband and I were looking for a house. We sort of had this idea, like maybe we could buy a house in Brooklyn, which turned out to not be a true thing, but it was a nice idea we had for a while. And, um, and it was like, part of it was going in a lot of spaces and, and thinking about setting down roots somewhere and thinking about, you know, when you're, when you're sort of thinking, okay, I'm going to be a little less transient in the city. I'm going to find my little corner of it. And thinking so much about different neighborhoods, what it means to live in a neighborhood, what it means to buy property somewhere or, um, you know, how you're choosing to, yeah, to set down your roots in that city. And, and I think for me, that made me start thinking about the history and, and what was here before and my place in it. Um, yeah. And then not having grown up here, there's a lot of city history that I just didn't know. So it's, it was a really, for me, a really fun way to kind of dive in. So let's talk about Weeksville because uh, that that was something that was new to me. Uh, I'm assuming it was new to you at least when you stumbled upon it and started to, I guess, build it into your narrative. But I think the, to the, uh, to the casual listener, particularly those who are outside of the New York metropolitan area, they probably wouldn't know what Weeksville is. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people don't. And I think a lot of particularly white people in the city don't um, because it's sort of an interesting kind of hidden chapter of history. Yeah, I kind of stumbled upon it. I knew I wanted to have these dual narratives in the book and have a contemporary story where there was a haunted house. And I knew I wanted the house to be a part of um, New York City history and also have the book also tell the story of the house's past. But I hadn't quite, you know, dug into what the, the that sort of past, the historical layer of the book was going to be. And I started doing all this research. And as I think every historian or amateur historian already knew, you kind of can't really scratch the surface of American history or New York City history without getting to, you know, a story about race and racism and sort of the country's unresolved grief, which it's so interesting to me that this book is coming out this year in American history. But anyway, so Weeksville. So as soon as I, I read about all of these different sort of chapters of Brooklyn history, and as soon as I read about Weeksville, I thought, oh God, it's so fascinating because it's it was a farming village, this kind of almost utopian community. It was its own town in what is now Brooklyn. And it was founded in 1838, you know, before the Civil War by free landowning African-Americans. And it was this community full of very educated people. There were churches, there were schools, there was um, an old age home, there was a you know, cemeteries and their own newspaper. Um, a lot of the people who lived there kept journals, which weren't found until later. And of course, at the the contemporary, um, you know, New York City media portrayed it as this wild, you know, den of iniquity, although its own records show that it was actually just like a very nice little quiet <laughs> farm town. Um, and then it, it just eventually became kind of subsumed by Brooklyn as, as Brooklyn sort of grew up around it. And a lot of the, um, but, but some of the, the original farmhouses are still there, but they're just now in these, you know, kind of gritty Brooklyn streets. Um, it was, it was rediscovered. And part of what I love about it is the story of the rediscovery of it. It just sort of, you know, got, you know, Brooklyn sort of built up all around it. And then in the 1960s, this historian uh, named James Hurley, he was reading an old history of Brooklyn and, and sort of thought, wait a minute, I, it sounds like this community of Weeksville was right here in what is now sort of the Crown Heights Bed-Stuy neighborhood. And he had a, apparently he had a friend with a prop plane and this was a thing that you could do in 1960s. Brooklyn was just fly your little plane around over neighborhoods looking for it. And they found these houses that were off the city grid. And so, and there were these old, you know, wood frame houses that looked like farmhouses but the fact that they were off the grid made them think, okay, this must be it. It's clearly, you know, existing on a different map than what has been overlaid. And then he did all this research and had all of these uh, school children and other just neighborhood people and amateur historians and archaeologists do all of this work to discover 
um, and, and to then um, restore these houses. And now the Weeksville Heritage Society has this beautiful plot of land. Like when you go there, you just turn a corner and it's like you're in the past on this beautiful farm. Um, it's it's a very magical feeling place. And they have these three original houses. And um, and now there's like a big, beautiful visitor center and museum. And, and they helped me do a lot of research for the book, too. But um, yeah, it's just such an interesting history. Sorry, I get really excited about it. And I feel like I just talked for 100 years. But no, I get it. I get it. <laughs> and, you know, it also it brought to mind for me, um, Robert Moses, the you know the famous uh, New York City planner, the subject of uh, Robert Caro's book, yeah. The Power Broker, and I was thinking of all these neighborhoods, mostly working class neighborhoods, um, you know, people of color living there, and these you know massive like city works projects that Moses undertook just wiped these neighborhoods off the map. So. Yeah. If you're driving on a freeway in and around New York City, it's likely you might be driving straight through somebody's old home. And it's kind of heartbreaking because, you know, these places were vibrant, close-knit communities, and they just didn't have the resources to overcome this guy's power and sort of menace, you know, and kind of uh, monomaniacal desire to pave and develop and uh, make friendly for automobiles the city of New York. So... It's not exactly the same thing right. that happened to Weeksville, but it's the same general idea the way, you know, there could be like entire places that are filled with life one moment and within a year even they can be gone forever. Yeah, yeah. I was just actually uh, read a really interesting article on the publication Gen, which is part of Medium, which I work for, um, but it was about gentrification and sort of how the pandemic might be speeding up gentrification and how um, there's this scholar quote in the article talking about how, you know, it's not just uh, that people are losing their jobs and have to move out of their neighborhoods. It's part of this really deeply ingrained story and pattern in the United States of America where disenfranchised people are pushed out of their spaces and their homes. And it's, it's just such a sort of psychological trauma you know your home is so important to you and you're you know in a country where we we make so much of land and who has what land and um this sort of constant process of pushing people off their land it's just i don't know fascinating yeah there's so many i mean like we could talk for an entire hour (laughs) about all the different issues related to urban planning and how people are housed especially living in big cities like Mm -hmm. we do i mean these things are so front of mind uh, for me in Los Angeles, I'm sure it's the same in New York, but it's coming, it's coming to a head sooner than later, you know, like how we're going to deal with housing prices and how we're going to deal with climate change and how we're going to have to rezone and all the rest. I think, Mm -hmm. I think like, you know, without getting too deep into the weeds on it, but what what happens (laughs) all too often when they have these kinds of debates, uh, in big cities is that everybody's sort of all for, uh, affordable housing and multi-unit housing and all this stuff, as long as it's not in their neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? It's right, like, just don't course. do it here. Yeah. Do it someplace else and we're good. But if you do it in my backyard, there's going to be an issue. And so that's why it always gets jammed up in the in the uh, legislative process. Yeah, and there's so much coded speech about it, which to me, you know, I was thinking about real estate, looking at real estate, and I guess it was around the same time that my kids were starting public school. and And I just... 
I became aware of all the coded ways that people talk about neighborhoods and parts of the city and sort of that, like, oh, well, you can't go to that neighborhood because the schools, you know, and it, sometimes it means the schools and sometimes that just means, you know, you'll be the only white person there and you don't want to do that. Or, um, I don't know, you know, it, it's just, it's so insidious the way it shapes even, you know, the language and the way that we move around the city. And, um, yeah. And it's, it's interesting because yeah, for as long as I've been here, I do sort of always slightly feel like an outsider, which I feel like me, makes me more watchful of things and, and more per, for some reason I'm perpetually surprised by New York city. You know, I don't know. Like when I had that realization, I was like, Oh wait, we can't buy a house, but I know all these people who are artists who bought houses that are really nice. Hold on a second. I don't think they bought their own houses. <laughs> like everything is perpetually a surprise to me. So um, maybe it means I then I have to think it through a little more. I feel like we're getting uh, off topic a bit, but just the, <laughs> the difference in terms of like what people earn, you know, like, because yeah. like, like you're saying, you look around at housing prices or you look around at what it costs to live in New York City and it's like, Right. Who the fuck can afford this? Like who who yeah. is living in these places? Who's buying these like loft apartments for seven million dollars? And it's just it's hard to imagine anybody can do it. I guess a lot of it is foreign money or it's uh, you know, wealth transfer generationally, and then maybe there's just some like investment bankers who hit it big. I mean, what's the well, maybe they're pirates. Maybe there's like some secret thing that we don't just don't even know about. Um, I, I feel like there's been a lot of sort of New York City gallows humor lately because, you know, the sort of the the zeitgeisty conversation about New York City's dead and it was just declared an anarchist state or something, which I feel like everyone I know was like, awesome. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Way to make us sound so cool, you guys. Thank you. But um but but I do feel like I'm having that conversation with friends a lot where we're like, wow, is New York City about to get real weird? And could that be awesome in a way? <laughs> like, totally get that that's a very privileged point of view. But I do feel like I'm hearing a lot of that conversation where people are like, hold on, I think maybe you know, artists really are going to be able to buy lofts again in a couple of years. And like, it's not going to be pretty around us, but there might be some benefit to what's about to happen to the city. Maybe. I've also okay. heard, I've also heard like darker takes where it's like, Oh my God, if everybody flees the city and the price, right. you know, nobody's renting and the housing prices drop dramatically, then all of these like holding companies and investment banks and whatever are going to come in and just buy up all the real estate and wait for the market to go back up and then rent it out. Yeah. That's or... less fun. <laughs> Way less fun. <laughs> I'm like... Just, it's like everything's a chase bank. You're yeah. like, Aw. Yeah. 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 That but... was going to be artists. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. 
The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, I want to talk to you about the occult because... No, your, your I book... always want to talk about that. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> is that the right... Am I using that term correctly when it comes to ghosts and stuff? That's the occult, right? Or just like the supernatural maybe might be the best. Supernatural, yeah. Uh, you're concerned with this as well in your book and you're sort of braiding together all these different strands. And I'm just curious to know, like, have you seen a ghost? Is this something you've been fascinated with for a long time? Did you see a ghost? And was this something that like prompted you to, you know, weave it into your fiction? Good question. Am I a ghost? Are we all ghosts? Um, we can get there. Uh, you know, I think that I'm like a like Fox Mulder uh, ghost person. Like I want to believe. I love the idea of it, actually. Um, I mean, really, I, I love the idea that there's another. Um, I don't know. It makes sense to me that you you can't just be alive or dead, and that there would be kind of something in between. Um, I and and narratively it's so useful to have that in between space um yeah there's there's a ghost in the book who and and I always wanted her to be like a solid ghost it's not it's not a figment of anyone's imagination it's not like a Henry James turn of the screw is it or isn't it really a ghost like I love I love a solid ghost um and she has a story to tell and uh and eventually tells it. Um, and I was right, just thinking so much about how sort of largely about kind of America as a haunted house and New York City as a haunted house and how there's all of these, like we were just talking about all of these sort of buried layers of history that surely have some resonance and stories to still tell. Uh, boringly, I really have not had an experience with a ghost, sadly, but I love the idea so much, but I will say, okay, cause I know you're a dog person, right? Correct. So, yes. So maybe you will not think this is the silliest, but, uh, I used to have a dog and when the dog died, so we had, the dog was old and sick and dying and we had her put down in our apartment and I just, the next, especially the next few days, I really totally felt like she was still there you know you just felt some kind of presence and in the places where she would often be laying down it's like you could sort of feel something there and I remember thinking all right she's a dog and like I don't know not the smartest dog I don't know if your brain power affects how powerful you are as a ghost I don't really know how it works but um but I but I just remember thinking if I feel this sort of presence this shadowy something here just for a couple days after this stupid awesome old dog died what if you know what if it was a person maybe there's more maybe they stick around more and i always thought too like my conception of how this works is that like if you have unfinished business or if you die in some state of like particular attachment or concern 
about a situation or a person in your life or something that maybe you might linger in that kind of like uh, transitional state or bardo state or whatever you call it longer. Right. Yes. I was just going to say, did you read Lincoln and the Bardo? Uh, part of it. Yeah. Not all of it. Um, <laughs> this is very, so... this is very common for me, by the way, I do this all the time. Like I'll be flipping through, I was probably in a bookstore It stood there for like 45 minutes or something. I find that shocking. I can't believe you just said that. Why? Um, that's so, that's so liberating just to put down a book if you're not wanting to finish it. I mean, I, I do want to finish it. That's the weird thing. I just have so, <laughs> I have so many books, Amy. You have no idea that. how many I get. Like oh, four, I, I have the... I, yeah. I get like four books a day. Um, that's really funny. Lincoln and the Bardo, the first time I started reading it, I, I immediately put it down and thought, I cannot handle this. What is this? And then the next time I picked it up, you know, it's just, it has to be the right book at the right time. And I couldn't put it down. And it's a really quick read. Um, but for people who haven't read it, it's George Saunders novel. Is it a novel? I don't know, but it's, it's almost written like a play. It's all these voices and it's, all of these spirits who are lingering in this in-between state. Um, they're dead. They don't want to admit they're dead and they haven't gone to essentially, they never name it, I don't think, but it's like the good place. Um, and they're sort of stuck in this in-between state. And uh, yeah, I love the conversations that they have amongst themselves is so fascinating. Great. And it feels so, it's very funny the book but it also feels so sort of psychologically real that it would take you a while to get used to this idea you know change is really hard imagine that that's a big change anyway. <laughs> making the transition to like the netherworld or whatever that's right take your time guys yeah it's hard enough get to it. like it's hard enough to like switch neighborhoods in brooklyn let alone that's right yeah i just moved like half a mile and it took me a while to get used to it <laughs> i'm not even dead so let's talk about death a little bit more because grief is another, Please. it's another theme. Your, uh, your heroine, yeah. Meg Reese, is, am I pronouncing that right? It's Reese, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So is that like a nod to Jean Reese or is that, or Jean Reese or whatever? Yes, exactly. Oh. Okay. That's right. She's like, this character's sort of, um, she's kind of like comprised in, in her in her own life and in the narrative of the book of different uh characters from books you know and part of that is is how she constructs her own life and then part of that is how i conceived her in my brain got but it yeah. and yes. so and she's and, and she's grieving the loss of her sister kate right uh which is like a through line in the book and I guess like it, it all makes sense, you know, a ghost stories, uh, a lost sister, like there are these pieces coming together. Um, this is obviously on your mind, you know, I guess maybe it's like, it's at our age, as you mentioned earlier, I don't know, I'm 45. <laughs> I think you're a little younger than I am, but we're close to death, man. Well, it's like the old joke, you know, I want to say this is a Louis CK joke. So apologies for quoting it. Cause I know That's he's, okay. he's persona non grata, but um, he was talking about like, once you get past like a certain age, like it's no longer tragic if you die, you know, <laughs> like, like it's getting to the point where like, no one would be like, there'd be like no candlelight vigil. He was so young. Yeah. No, it would just be like, Oh, he died. You know? Oh, well, that's what happens I don't to people. Think you're like there him. yet. I'm but getting, okay. we're getting, I'm getting there, you know? And, people uh, like it. so I think that maybe, I mean, not maybe, of course you start to think more about death the older you get because you know, it's coming. <laughs> And, um, I've also lost a lot of people in my life. I think the longer you live, 
you know, you're obviously going to lose people. Um, have you been dealing with a loss? Was there a loss in your life that sort of instigated this or is it just kind of like a general interest and fascination with loss and death and grief? Um, this is great. This is like therapy. Um, okay. Thank you for asking. I mean, I think, I think part of it is being a parent. You all of a sudden think about how, I don't know, like you create these lives. And that means that you also have created their deaths, which is a fun way to think about parenting. But it's true. Um, and everything feels so, so much more dire and serious. And you feel so much more vulnerable to everything when you're a parent. And I think especially a parent of young children, as I was when I started writing. It's like they seem more, I don't know, solid now, <laughs> my kids. But um, and uh but also something I was thinking about a lot as as I was writing this was my parents uh, who they, for, for whatever reason, because, you know, you just don't think about your parents as people until you're like 35 in my case, apparently. But um, my parents met in their 20s and they had both just experienced a, a big loss. My mom's brother and my father's father died suddenly and uh and my parents were in their early 20s and they met and and they said you know at some point I said wait a minute do you think that that bonded you together and and my mom said yes of course it was like we were two lost souls finding each other um and which is so sweet and also it's my parents gross guys but um but it, but it really was, you know, it made me think a lot about, you know, especially when you're young and you've experienced sort of a brutal loss like that, most of the people in your life don't understand. They just haven't been through something like that. So I, I loved the idea of writing about um, two characters who kind of come together because because they have each experienced a, a big loss, like Meg and this guy Ellis that she meets, and, and they sort of come together in that way. And it seemed like a sort of that was sort of the like person size story of it. And it seemed to me like the stand in for sort of the country size story of, you know, how do we deal with all this unresolved grief and trauma that just is, you know, life in America? It's such, um, a, it's but a, it's, it's such a relevant question. Uh, I, it's on my mind a lot. And I've talked about it with guests on this show before where you know, first of all, you've got to see it all. You've got to recognize that the grief exists and that the injustice has existed and continues to exist. And you sort of have to see the problem clearly. Um, and then the question is like, what to do about it? And right. then the question, yeah. the question beyond that for me is like, how are we going to know when we get there? Like, what's the evidence yeah. procedure? Like, how are we going to get, like, how are we going to get healed for real? Yeah. You know, is it even possible? Yeah. It's like all of America goes to therapy and the therapist is like great news guys <laughs> we figured it out you're okay now you're done i mean but we... i do think i mean you're right. all done you're fixed i i do think like in the book i feel like for my characters and they don't you know get it all figured out but an answer ends up being sort of connecting with each other and connecting and hearing each other's stories and sort of connecting across difference and maybe that's 
sort of the the person sized version that <laughs> that we can can pursue is just I don't know. Is that such a soft answer? Just trying to listen and connect to people, but I do feel like we're in a I mean, we have to do more now than just listen to people, but that's part of it. Yeah, I think like I've been going back and forth too. I think it's like a toggling between like the personal and sort of taking care of your own house, you know, making sure that you're doing personal work to be better and to understand these things and all that. And then there's also like the the more macro, like legislative level where there's got to be, that's where there's got to be real change. It has to happen in the halls of power in order for it to be sweeping enough to really make a dent. Um, yeah, that's totally right. And that's so hard. I mean, this is a particularly, I feel like hard moment for, um, you know, just feeling a little bit hopeless in the, in the face of everything that's happening. And like, we're talking you know, I guess just a couple of days after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And I feel like there's been this sort of collective outpouring in my bubble anyway of um, just people feeling like, oh, my God, this is also helpless. And I'm just one person. What can I do? You know, I can I don't know, make some phone calls. I can <laughs> just before whatever. just before I came on the line with you, I gave away like more of our money to like every single like swing Senate rate. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what yeah. I keep doing. I just keep giving our money yeah. away. I'm just like, okay. I think, yeah. Yeah. I think that's the right thing to do. I think that's the most helpful. Um, yeah. It's so hard to yeah know what to do as, as just a person. Well, have you ever considered running for office, Amy? <laughs> uh, no. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I was just having this conversation with a friend where um, we were talking about this weekend. She texted me. She said, I know AOC said no more brunch. We can't have brunch anymore. We have to do the hard work, but I really want to have brunch. And I was like, oh, me too. <laughs> um, I was like, I wish I was an AOC where I was just, you know, I, I have so much admiration for those people who, you know, are just dedicating their lives to to making change. I do also think that just there's something important about matching just as a person in the world about matching your, your personality and energy type and the things that you're good at with the things that you actually do. Like, I do not think I'd be a good politician, but what about you? Have you ever thought about it? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I have, if I'm being honest, like, I mean, but not in any kind of like serious, like actionable way. It's just like, <laughs> maybe, maybe I could be like the alderman or the city council person. Like, like but, my, my, my dreams are very uh, modest. I think politically, I was never thinking of myself as like a Senator or something, but I, I'm just thinking about how can I actually impact things and be a force for change. But then those kinds of like mental conversations quickly peter out because yeah. I really have very low confidence that I could get elected. Maybe that's misplaced, but like my biography just doesn't fit. Like it's always like somebody who went to Harvard law school or like studied city planning at MIT or some shit. And I'm like a podcaster <laughs> who wrote a couple books. You know, like I would not describe you as a podcaster who wrote a couple books. First of all, I think you need some personal branding I'm a change there. I'm a literary um, media titan. You're media mogul is how I would describe you. Okay. And I, I mean this in a good way. I think that you totally could do something like that. Like you, I, I mean, you're what the, the 
councilman chief of um, the nervous breakdown. That's no joke. That's right. And uh, and I actually think that super local politics are incredibly important, really. Um, you know, that's where actually a lot of change can happen quickly and, you know, not with a huge budget. And I, th- I think you should do it. All right. Um, All right. That's I'm it. I'm, I'm announcing my I'm announcing a, my candidacy right now. Sign. Great. Perfect. <laughs> I can um, I can donate like fifteen twenty dollars today. Great. I'm willing to make that pledge. <laughs> uh, you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Let's let's get on it. I feel like you need like a fun sign, a T-shirt. A I feel like this is going to do itself. This this campaign. All right. Well, I'll I'll keep pondering it. Right. I want I want to have an impact and like I do think like the times that we're living in have made a lot of us more civic minded than we might otherwise have been, which I guess on a certain level is positive. You know, I, I hate mm-hmm. that it took such tumult to make it happen, but here we are. It's true, and I really do think it's an exciting moment. There are so many, you know, more women and people of color running for for office, and especially in those really hyper-local seats. I don't know. I think that, that that's really important. It's It seems so, like, um, extroverty, though. You should talk to so many people. God, yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> How fucking be, exhausting. I would not. I'd be like, so I just did a campaign event and now I need three days to just sit in a quiet room and recoup. And they'd be like, we we hate you. You can't do that. They say Abraham Lincoln was an introvert. We have had introverted presidents. I mean, I think you can, you can be an introverted. Barack Obama was an introvert or is an introvert. Um, I can see that. You know, needs that like, like he used to work, I guess his like whole thing was he would stay up later than everybody and work into the night just to have that alone time. I get that. buddy yeah same except i do it early in the morning but i feel that yeah so you've mentioned that you're from the midwest uh whereabouts i'm from the suburbs of chicago which i feel like both is so much the midwest and then is you know kind of its own little pocket of something i don't know i mean it feels my sister li- my sister lives in the, the suburbs of chicago and i feel like mm-hmm. it's i've been there it feels midwest to me I feel like I have to be very careful not to say Chicago because then people who are really from the city sort of sniff me out immediately and they're like, um, sorry, do you mean Chicago? Do you mean the suburbs? It's really people feel really strongly about those lines, which which I kind of get, but it's fine. So born and raised, born and raised in suburban Chicago. That's right. I was born in Evanston, which is a small city right outside of Chicago. Um, Yeah. And then raised on the on the North Shore, which is actually now that I've had time away from it, when I visit it, I recognize that it's quite lovely. Who knew? Didn't really clock that when I was growing up. But, you know, there's a lot of trees and ravines and it's like a John Hughes movie. That's that's where all those movies take place. Wait, wait, were you in Glencoe? What was it called? What's the name of the suburb? Glen Uh, Allen? No way. Highland Park. Totally different. Oh, Um, but yeah, there's a. a scene in Weird Science where they drive down my street past my parents' house. Not to brag too much, but damn, it was, it was yeah, it was a. I was very centered in like '90s uh, teen media. <laughs> That's awesome. I I grew up on those movies, like uh, those Hughes movies, which 
they have a you know I have a soft spot for them because I grew up on them, but on repeat viewings, I'm thinking of Sixteen oh. Candles in particular. There's oh, some no. cr- there's a lot of cringeworthy stuff in those movies. Very problematic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ooh, and then the other claim to fame of my quiet, boring neighborhood where I grew up is that um you know in the in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, Cameron's house with the garage and the it's like two blocks from my parents' house. Um, which occasionally has impressed people, but that, that's an awesome house. It's really nice, yeah. It's a uh, yeah, and then we just walk by it and go, there, "There's that house, yeah." Is, but, it, uh, is it still intact as it was? It is. It's been actually undergoing some very serious renovations for the past few years. I, apparently, like a, a huge glass box is a little hard to keep up in sort of Chicagoland winters, but. But yeah, I guess somebody lives there and I don't know. Okay. So, but it sounds like an all-American childhood. Am I misreading this? Like you're growing up in suburban, like John Hughes land, (laughs) your parents are together, it sounds like. Yeah, they still are. Can you believe it? They're, they're, um, yeah, they're sort of uh, erstwhile hippies who met in um, California in Oakland in the 70s and then we're sort of like oh you know it would be totally crazy and radical would be to move to the Midwest I guess and have children um so they're very creative people and they're I I don't know that they're completely what people picture when you picture (laughs) regular suburban parents but they can pass for regular suburban parents well well, how so you mean just because they're hippiness right yeah they're just like hippies who they're both retired and i'm pretty sure they just uh like jam out in guitar circles with their friends all the time and uh take substances that are now legal and so your parents are stoners (laughs) that's my that's my running theory i should you know i'm sure they're gonna listen to this and mom (laughs) dad you guys are doing great everything's fine everything you're doing is perfect I'm glad that you're having fun in your retirement and chilling with your homies. Does your dad have a gray ponytail? I, it's not. He doesn't have a ponytail. He does, but he does have like very luxurious hair. <laughs> That's nice. Beard. He's in like a he's in like a group that I don't know if there's. I guess in these times they're doing it over Zoom. He's in like a weekly Bob Dylan jam session. It's I don't know. They're just doing their thing. Damn, that sounds cool. So what do they do? What do they do? Like, are your parents uh, writerly or either of them writerly? Yeah, yeah. My dad always had, you know, a a regular person job, but um, was always writing. And, you know, he's probably written 10 unpublished novels. And um, I was just talking about this (laughs) in another, uh, another interview about how, you know, when I started my MFA program, you know, all the other writers were like, aren't your parents so disappointed that you're here, you know, getting an MFA in fiction writing? It's so hard to explain to people. And I had to be like, no, my parents think it's great. They're so encouraging. (laughs) You know, it's like you're trying to be a tortured artist and your parents are like, everything you do is so great, honey. We love it. (laughs) Write another novel. Like, guys, come on, give me something to work with here. (laughs) Right. Quit being so understanding. I know. Could be so supportive of everything. Ugh. So what kind of kid were you? What kind of kid was Amy Shearn? (laughs) What a funny question. I think I was pretty much always exactly how I am now. Just reading a lot of books and 
in my own world. And I was really, really shy as a kid. Um, and then somehow I got in, in middle school, I sort of got, I did some theater and I was super duper not a theater kid, but it really helped me be able to, you know, talk to human beings. And, uh, that was helpful, but, but yeah, but I, I kind of, it's funny cause I feel like in pandemic life where I'm alone in my house and I work from home so often, I'm like, Oh no, am I reverting? Am I going to lose my people skills? Cause it's not natural to me. Like nat- what is natural to me is, you know, being perfectly still and alone in a room and not speaking and just reading and writing. And uh, I'm like, am I going to remember how to how to go back in the world and talk to people and interact at work. I don't know. I'm going to have to like, I don't know, go to theater camp again, I think. Well, but. a couple of things. First of all, I would not have guessed that you were somebody who was like super shy. You seem so personable <laughs> and chatty. I'm a recovering shy person. Like it's like being a recovering alcoholic. Like you're never, you're never out of it. Right. You're just managing the, the condition. Uh, the second thing I would say is that people losing their social skills and, sort of falling in love with the isolation of pandemic life is a real thing. I just read an article about this where it's actually potentially like a real problem for a lot of people who are sort of like hanging out in their room playing Xbox or just like, you know, (laughs) and they're like, maybe this is just the rest of my life. You know, like I don't want to leave. I know. Yeah. That's the problem is, is not missing the world the problem is and and you know people have been like wow new york city is so qu- so much quieter now it's kind of perked up a little more in the summer months but for a couple months everyone is saying oh it's so it's so quiet nobody's out in the street and it's so sad and i was like sorry but i love it <laughs> i think it's great <laughs> yeah i loved the like when the pandemic first started it was like the first month basically in Los Angeles, the traffic was just cut in half oh, yeah. and it was awesome. Yeah. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. loved it. I know. I'm like, sorry about all the, you know, death and fear, but I can find parking right in front of my building. <laughs> this is really life changing. No doubt. Yeah. So, uh, shy kid, I'm imagining bookish. You have these creative, <laughs> you have creative hippie parents. Do you have any siblings? Yeah. Yeah, I have a younger brother who um, lives in L.A. Do you know him? Ben. He's my next door neighbor. I knew it. Yeah, he works in film. That guy. That guy. The guy who works in film. Is he a a screenwriter? Uh, He is. He he mostly makes his living as um, a film editor. He does freelance editing stuff, but he, you know, like everyone, as far as I can gather in L.A., he writes films he has done all sorts of things sort of film adjacent um yeah good for him and yeah he's he's out there doing it and he's lived in la i think almost as long as i've lived in new york we're a tri-coastal family uh and he hates the beach he's like what i don't know what he's doing there but i don't talk to him would you get him outside i don't some fresh air i don't like the beach either that much (laughs) i don't like hate the beach but like what i always say is like it's like an ashtray everyone's just putting their cigarettes out in it sand gets everywhere um i sound exactly real problem yeah i sound like my dad but you just get dirty (laughs) you're just like what am i doing i'm filthy and i got sand everywhere Yeah. yeah something needs to be done about sand yeah 
and the uh and then like the crowds is the really probably the thing that I don't like yeah. the most about it. Like in the summer you couldn't drag me to the beach in LA when there's like 6,000 people out there and everybody's yeah. in motion. And then I yeah. don't want I, I don't want to get too gross, but like during the pandemic, like public restrooms have basically <laughs> been shut down. So like except I, for the beach. <laughs> well, this is the thing. People go to the beach and I'm looking at all I can think is like is everybody just pooping in the water? Is that what's happening? Like it's everyone, a big litter box. That's what it is. People, because yeah. no one's using the actual facilities. People are just going out for a swim and just like, I don't even know. I don't even want to think about it, but it troubles me. I mean, look, we were, uh, we go to Cape Cod every summer and my kids, uh, at one point is either last summer or the summer before we were in the ocean and, you know, it's all nice and idyllic and my son just goes, so fish and whales and stuff, they're just pooping in the water, right? We're just in their poop right now. And honestly, the beach has never been the same for me since. I don't know how I never thought about that. But I was like, yeah, I guess that's right. So that's much. Right. Yeah, so this, much. We should be inside with books <laughs> where it's safe. The beach is a bad idea. The truth is that I love to swim in the ocean. I mm. just want it to be like clean. I, I mean, not clean from I, – I, I, you have to live with whale poop. It's going to be there. But sure. I just don't want like oil – or like human feces, if I can avoid it, you know, or like any kind of chemicals that shouldn't be there. Very fussy. I feel like you might want a swimming pool. Maybe. Do you I, know about those? I do. I, do you I, have one? No, I, I wish I had one. It's like, you know, our backyard, <laughs> if we had a swimming pool, we would have zero backyard. That's how small our backyard is. And so you would basically walk out the back door and like fall into the pool. Could be fun. Could be fun. <laughs> but I don't think it's going to happen. All right. Um, let's talk about your trajectory as a writer and how this happened for you. Uh, I, you know, I'm imagining that you went to some kind of school and got a liberal arts education or degree of some kind. How dare you make that assumption about me? <laughs> it's it's 100% true, but it, it, I could have done something else. Um, yeah, I, I really always wanted to be a writer and it's a good thing it's sort of panned out as much as it has because um, it was my only idea. Like it was the only thing I ever really wanted to do or was really super, you know, good at. Um, I just, that pause was me having an internal moment where I was like, don't say you're super good at writing and then think, <laughs> yes, do say that, Amy, because I'm still there mentally. <laughs> I feel It's you. okay. I I can say that. I, I think it's okay. I think I'm okay at it. Um, but I really, I was always writing, you know, I wrote a novel when I was 10 and a novella. Let's be fair. It was a novella, but, um, but yeah, I always knew I wanted to do it. And, uh, I, in college I studied, uh, English and literature and I did a creative writing thesis somehow I I talked them into letting my senior thesis be like a book of short stories about weird doppelgangers it's like so out there but um yeah and then I got an MFA from the University of Minnesota so wait where did you go to undergrad did you already say I went I kind of went it's a little complicated I started at the University of New Mexico uh and then and and then I went to a lot of schools and then I finished at the University of Iowa. Um and why did you go to so many schools? 
listen, did my parents ask you to ask me that? No. They, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I think I'm, I think I really wanted to, I think, I think what really happened is I wanted to take a year off and I was like, I just want to travel and go somewhere different and see the world. And my parents were like, LOL, no, you and your brother are four years apart in school. This is your turn to go to college. Do you want to go or not? And I was like, oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Let's do that. Um, so New Mexico seemed as far away from Chicago as I could get and still be in the country. And it, it's, it's such an interesting place. I don't know. I mean, surely you've been there. It's not so far from you. Right? I've been to, uh, the university of New Mexico is in Albuquerque. Yeah. Okay. So when I was a freshman in college, I spent one semester in a fraternity. Um, and then we got thrown off campus. <laughs> Um, it was like this big disaster. So the only thing I ever did was I was a pledge and just got like abused for like the first semester of my college existence. And then it was over. Just the bad part. Yeah. But there was this thing that like we were supposed to do as pledges, if we could pull it off where we like, we're supposed to kidnap two (laughs) fraternity people and like take them to another chapter of the fraternity at a different school and like get get really drunk. I was at Boulder in, in Colorado. Were you maybe in, was this the mafia? No. I think no. maybe you weren't in a fraternity. No. So this I think gets... you were an organized <laughs> So this gets better. So we, we threw okay. this, we, we organized this big party and the whole point was that we were going to basically pretend to be drinking the whole night, but stay sober <laughs> and then get everybody else really drunk, like make an extra effort to like pour like alcohol into the mouths of all these fraternity people. And, um, we wound up renting a rider truck, like one of those big yellow rider trucks. And we like kidnapped two of these actives <laughs> and like duct taped them to chairs and put them in the back of this rider truck. And there were like 20 of us packed into the back of this rider truck with a keg. And it got so bad that like, like they had, like there were like, there had to be bathroom breaks. So like they would, you know, whoever was driving the rider truck would lift up the back of this thing and like 20 people would pour out. And because these guys were taped up, because we didn't want to let them go, if they got away, that was the game. If they got away, then we wouldn't succeed. So, like, one of these guys had to pee, but his arms were duct taped. And I remember no. it was like, who's going to, like, no. help the, Yeah, who's going to help this guy pee? <laughs> so we had to, like, help them pee. It was like, it was a disaster. But, Look, you kidnap a guy, you have to help him pee. Yeah. That's part of, the, like, the social construct. This was my, this is my freshman first semester but uh anyway we went to the university of new mexico that was my one experience and it was like (laughs) it was very brief we just like showed up at this uh place and these guys were like what are you guys doing here we just we hadn't slept everyone was you know wasted it was uh very 18 years old but wow uh anyway you're there i feel like you could do do politics i'm just saying it's like you've got you've got what it takes this tape Um, this tape will destroy my career right here (laughs) Um, yeah, I was in Albuquerque, not kidnapping anyone, just (laughs) chilling and like reading books and going for hikes in the desert. Um, I feel like I really missed out on some opportunities apparently, (laughs) but (laughs) like my friends and I were literally like, can we talk about philosophy under this tree some more? Um, it was pretty wild times, but, uh, yeah. And then I was like, hold on. I am really far from home. <laughs> I think, you know, just felt that's pretty far. Um, and needed to sort of. And also, I feel like New Mexico is a fascinating 
and beautiful place. But I think it sort of didn't match the energy that I had at the time. Like it's, it's like the place where I think 60 year old me should move back when I'm ready to just sort of chill on a mountaintop and just like write and have like a, a dog with an interesting name or something. But at, you know, I was, I don't know. I just felt like I was like, I was like, wait, I want to be where things are happening. So, you know, Iowa City, obviously. <laughs> like, I was gonna say a normal. Yeah, I was like, I need to get to the heart of it. No, that, then I had like a stop back in Chicago. I went back to Chicago for a little bit, and then, um, and then I was like, wait, 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 wait. No, what I really wanted was a totally normal college experience. Like I visited a friend who lived in Iowa City, and just thought, oh, this is so cute. It really feels like a college town. That would be fun. I think I was just sort of collecting experiences is the short answer to that. Um, and in that early part of my 20s, I just, I, I moved around a lot. And I don't know, I think I was just hungry for different experiences and to live in different places and do different things. Um, yeah. And then I graduated from the University of Iowa. I get it though. I think, I think that's normal. I felt that way. I mean, I loved where I went to school. Like Boulder was, it matched yeah. my energy, but Beautiful. I think, I think that is a good way to put it. Um, and I'm thinking now about my present context, like having lived in this city for almost 20 years and yeah. s- starting to think like, man, I really would love some space. It would be so nice to have like a place in the country or something. Um, I don't know if that appeals to you. Is that something that's been, I know a lot of New Yorkers are like, maybe we should move upstate, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I totally get that. But I, like, I can't, um, I mean, I could, but I co-parent my children with my ex-husband and we live just a couple blocks from each other. And I think that's good. And I want to keep that going. You know, it's, it makes a lot of sense, especially in these times, the kids can walk back and forth. And so, you know, I feel like, while the kids are in play, it makes sense to stay put. Um, but I totally have had that, you know, every time and every chance I get, you know, every weekend I have the kids, I'm like, let's drive upstate or um, to Staten Island. I actually love taking them for hikes in Staten Island, but places where there's just a little more space. And it just, I feel so good when I'm somewhere where there's a lot of trees and there's a lot of space. And I definitely can feel that sort of happening. Um, and also just kind of, I don't know. Right. After a while somewhere, you're just kind of interested in a change or, or trying something different, but we'll see. I keep my friends and I are always joking and I'm not sure if we're all always joking. Cause I'm like 70% serious. Um, but we talk a lot about, uh, starting a all female writers commune upstate and it has to be, it's like in like eight years after all our kids are out of the house and then we're all like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have these, I, I think we need our own cottages. It's more of an intentional community, really. Um, and we just write all day, haven't figured out who's funding it. So let me know if you know of any like patrons of the arts. Go fund me. You could just do a GoFundMe. I'm sure people Yes, there you go. <laughs> Here's the thing is we're tired of having jobs and we just want to write all day in the woods. Uh, I feel like it's a solid plan. Come together every night for like some sort of fun dinner party. Um, then go back to our own little cottages. This is the long-term plan and I think it's a really good one. It's so funny to hear you say that because I've had similar thoughts about like maybe my sisters and I should like, we should pool our resources and buy like land and, 
like land where you could build like three cottages on it so that like our family has like a like a homestead or a a refuge do you know what i'm saying like are there all these like That's weird right, yeah. like weird like all, like creative ideas but also like survive there's an element of survivalism to it like right we, we need a compound you know <laughs> i mean it's kind of true there is that sort of subtext of um i was talking to a friend who lives in la um who she was just sort of like i'm having this feeling like climate change is really happening right in my face and this is not a good long-term plan for me to live where I'm living I was like all right here's the thing the commune upstate (laughs) we're not on the coast we're uh far north enough we just need to learn some skills the one problem here is that uh me and my female friends who we talk about this all the time we're all like writers and artists and and live in cities and therefore don't have any actual adult human skills of any sort that could keep us alive. So we need to work on that too. Those could be quickly learned. That's what Google is for. Right. YouTube, I'm sure, has something about like growing stuff and I don't know. There's a book. Uh, there's a book. What's it called again? It's called the, uh, Sur- the Survival Handbook SAS. My friend sent it to me as a joke right when all this pandemic business started. Uh, he lives in Michigan and like he owns guns and it kind of like a jokey way. He's like ready for the, the, you know, the outbreak of like civil war or something. He's always talking about militias, not in a creepy way, but just like, he's ready for the end times. <laughs> like a fun militia. Yeah. He's like, yeah. A, he's like a, he's kind of like oh, a goofy, good. goofy human being who like thinks that the end times could happen. And when they do, he has like this plan to escape to Canada or whatever, but he sent me that uh, that book, which is called the Survival Handbook, which is like all you need. You can take that on the road with you, and it'll teach you how to start a fire, uh, how to like field dress an animal, <laughs> all of it. Right, sure. I'll just get the book, and then I'll just have it, just right. in case. Keep it in your bag. Put it put it in a pl- Ziploc bag, right? <laughs> in my go bag, which it contains literally nothing. That's the go bag. It's just that book. Just that book. Um, yeah. So let's get back to Iowa, which is like not a bad spot for somebody who's writerly to land. Usually people, yeah. a lot of times people on this show who went to Iowa went there for graduate school. Um, right. Were you cognizant of the writing program before you decided to yeah. go there? Or was it something you learned about while you were there? I think I just knew that it was a writery place. Um, and sort of out of context, you know, like I didn't know anything about MFA programs are sort of how famous that program was. I was just sort of vaguely aware that it was a place where writers were. And as an undergraduate there, they have like an undergraduate workshop that I'm trying to remember how it worked. I think it's just every semester you can apply for it. And it's essentially just a writing workshop, but taught by people who are in the program, as they call it there. Like it's a cult, which I don't know, maybe MFA programs are slightly cults, but good cults um but yeah so and and I definitely became friends with a group of people who were sort of all writers and all creative people and it was a very um yeah it was a very nurturing environment to be and and then yeah and then I moved here in the summer of 2011 after after going to after going to Minnesota or no so 
No. So right after college, I moved here to New York City in the summer of 2001 with my boyfriend at the time. And we both had temp jobs. And he had a temp job at the World Trade Center. So 9-11 was a bad moment for us. And then um, he was was there and he, he was fine. I mean, not fine but he was alive obviously um so then after that we had both lost our temp jobs and we're like what is this place and you know it was such a weird moment in new york city nobody knew what was going on and then we went back to the midwest then i went to graduate school at the university of minnesota and then it's a three-year program and after three years there we're both sort of like all right let's try that new york city thing again and then i've been here ever since wow okay and what about writing like in publishing um were there novels that you wrote that did not find their way into print that live in a drawer or like how did, how did your apprenticeship and eventual like publication success unfold? Um, yeah, of course there's 10 novels that are in, in hard, uh, hard drives and not floppy disks really. Um, uh, the, I wrote a book, I wrote two books in my MFA program of, uh, novel and a collection of short stories and the novel I knew and there I reached a point where I knew it, it kind of got overworked you know like uh if you ever bake things and you like overwork the pie dough or something you're like all right this is never going to be the right texture now um I think that it was a book that got workshopped into oblivion but it it that was like an apprenticeship novel like I knew I was learning how to write a book and I came out of there with a collection of short stories and sent it to a couple of agents and they all, you know, say the agent thing, which is like, cool, let me know when you have a novel. Um, and so then my first book that was published uh, was called How Far Is the Ocean From Here? And I wrote it the first couple of years I lived in New York right after graduate school, like in the mornings before work, I worked as a web editor and um, I was, I got super disciplined about it, which at the time I thought I was a total badass. And now I'm like, I didn't have children. Everything was so easy. I had so much time, (laughs) like 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. every day was mine. And that's like such a luxury, actually. Um, And yeah. And so then when that book was done, I sent it to that same agent who had said, let me know when you have a novel. I was like, did you mean that? Because now I have a novel. Hi, here it is. Um, Yeah. And weirdly, he ended up being my agent for those first two books. He was like the only agent that I had really talked to. And uh, who was like doesn't happen. Oh, his name's PJ Mark. He's lovely. He's at he's at Janklo and Nisbet now. And and he's like a big deal now. Um, And he's a lovely person. And we had like uh, an amicable uh, conscious uncoupling after my second book because we were just sort of like going in different directions. And now I have a different agent named Julie Stevenson, who is, I'm going to say a goddess. I love her so much. She has like, she worked with me so much on unseen city on revisions and things in a way that I think many agents just don't do anymore. She's like a throwback, like 1920s agent. I feel like, (laughs) um, anyway, anyway, so the first book, it actually, yeah, weirdly kind of sold on the first round when he sent it out to his his first round of editors. And then I think I was like, oh, this is how this works. Seems fine. 
seems pretty easy and <laughs> not how it works. So I just totally got lucky. Um, yeah. Okay. So then you get that one out, uh, into print sold yeah. on the first round, yeah. sold another book, but I'm assuming it did not go as smoothly. No. So <laughs> that was the beginning and end of the smoothness of my publishing career. It's just <laughs> been a total mess since then. Um, but yeah, so I actually wrote a book in between the first and second books that didn't fully work. I don't know. I should reread it because my agent was sort of like, ah, oh, this is not really where we want to go. And now I'm like, is it? Maybe it is. I don't know. It was very, it was a very weird book. Um, and <laughs> he was sort of like, I think that maybe you could read a book that people would like. You could write a book that people would like to read in the nicest way. He said that in the nicest way, but and I was like, interesting idea. Ha, huh. let me try. I, maybe I could, I don't know. Let me try that. Um, truly had not crossed my mind. Uh, and then the second book I wrote after I had had like in between when my first and second children were born. So it was really written in this really compressed amount of time in two years, sort of in my baby's naps. And, you know, when I could, I did like a babysitting exchange with another mom I knew. And, um, and, and then when I was revising that book, I, so the main character in that book has two small children. And by the time I was revising it, I had had a second child and had two. And I was like, hold on real fast. Let me rewrite some of those scenes. I, uh, <laughs> I need to make the babies more annoying. Um, <laughs> I love my children, but you know, just to make it real. Um, yeah. And that book came out in 2013, the second book. Oh, but what I was going to say, so the first book, it was published by an imprint that then folded so it never came out in paperback that editor went to a different house as happens in publishing you know like they bounce all around and constantly bless them they have the hardest jobs and they do i don't know you know like you'll be talking to your editor and i just remember having a phone call with this, this editor who edited the first two books um and her just saying okay so i'm going on vacation next week so that means i'll have time to really focus on your book i was like oh man this is Right. This is really a hard job that you have. Um, they just have so much to do. Um, and yeah, so then it was the same editor, but she had gone to a different publishing house. So then she acquired my second book too. Um, Which is called? And it was called The Mermaid of Brooklyn. And it came out in 2013. And um, yeah, it's about a, a mom with two small children. And I was a mom with two small children. And then I was sort of horrified to find that people thought that the book was about me. I was like, what would make you think that? It's totally different. <laughs> there are kids of different names. It's different. Um, yeah. And then I was like, well, I want to write something really, really different so that people won't do that anymore. And, and so that I can be really free in what I'm writing. And I want to really invent this character from, from scratch. And she's a 40 year old single woman um, who <laughs> lives in an apartment with a terrace that she's really obsessed with. It's like a really big part of the book is her apartment. And then as the book is coming out, I'll just say I'm currently a 40 year old woman who uh, <laughs> I'm single. I live in an apartment with a terrace. It's just weird how these things happen. 
it's weird for the next book. I keep saying the next book I'm going to write into existence, a character who's like, I don't know, independently wealthy. Um, <laughs> she's like in amazing shape. Just like if I'm writing things into existence somehow, maybe L- yeah. lives on a commune or I an sh- intentional community upstate. That's right. <laughs> oh my God, you're right. Is super good at building fires. I'm like, what else do I need? Skinning squirrels or something. It's like, it's like very um, handy with a crossbow, you know, <laughs> I mean, as long as you might be writing things into existence, let's make it useful, I guess. And so the sales process for uh, The Mermaid of Brooklyn did not go on first round. I'm assuming Unseen did Unseen City. Like, you don't have to get too deep into it, but I think it's a useful conversation to have for for people listening who might be working on like a first book or who might be on the outside looking in wondering about it. Um, It's tough for literary fiction. It's really hard, especially if you don't have some like mammoth sales record, which basically nobody does except for like four people in literary fiction. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so oh, it's a fucking mess. It, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. And so can you talk about that? And then can you talk about how you work through it and what role maybe yeah. like a persistent agent plays and the the role of patience and then, you know, how like just kind of the mechanics of how totally. it goes down. Totally. Yeah. And I do think it's a really useful thing for, um, for other writers and readers to hear because, you know, you kind of only hear about the big, exciting, huge deals that 22 year old writers get and and whatever. And, and for most people, it's, it's so much more complicated. Um, but yeah, so I think, I mean, maybe my experience is not that unusual and that I, I, I don't know if this is true. I was going to say the first book is like the easiest to sell because everybody loves a debut and, um, and and you're unproven. So you don't have a sales record, but you also don't have a bad sales record. And it's just like, Oh, I mean, this is also the world of publishing, um, in what, 2006, 2007. So maybe it's totally different now, but, um, but yeah, it definitely felt like there was this willingness to just take a chance on, and that first book is pretty, weird and a pretty commercial house published it and was like sure i don't know we'll try it why not um but yeah so then the second book it there was actually some interest in it i talked to a couple different editors at a couple different houses which is my only experience ever doing that and we ended up going with the same editor from the first book and i remember my agent was like all right i'm gonna have a phone call with her and say listen (laughs) what happened with the first because the first book kind of got orphaned at the house and all this stuff um and but she had so much, she was very, really excited about the book. And she and I actually really worked well together. She's a great editor. She like gave what's, me line notes. With, what's her name? Oh, her name's Sally Kim. She's fantastic. And I think now she's at Putnam. I've lost track of her. Um, but she's, she was great. I remember talking to my sort of grad school mentor, Charlie Baxter, about the, the editing process. And I was like, well, I just got her line notes. And he was like, you got line notes? I'm so jealous. Because it's, it's like going to the spa for a writer, you know, to have that much attention to every little word. You're like, yes, let's get into it. Um, yeah, she's great. But um, and then I think there was kind of some enthusiasm in house for it. And there was this moment where I think, I don't know, it, it got um, 
it was sold like at Hudson News and and it got picked for this sort of target uh what did they call it? Emerging writers showcase. And like, it got a little bit of traction in a way that I think then made the eventual sales very disappointing to Simon and Schuster, <laughs> like more disappointing than it would be, have been had there not been that sort of initial like interest. And I think it had a second printing and all this stuff. So, so the sales were, um, you know, not what they wanted them to be. And then they were sort of like, all right, thanks. Bye. And, you know, it's so hard to get over that once you do have a sort of disappointing sales record and it's hard to get it out of your head too as a writer because you sort of internalize this feeling of like is there something that I should have done that I didn't do and really I think it's all such a crapshoot I don't think even publishers know like what makes a big book a big book they they know what to do they know what to try but even that doesn't always work I've I've had this conversation with myself, uh, maybe in like that self-critical mind that isn't necessarily always that helpful. Like, tell tell me if you've ever had this conversation with yourself where you're like, like, maybe the noise that I'm making just isn't loud enough. Or maybe the music that I'm playing is just like, it's just for a few people. It's just not for a wide audience. I'm just not one of those people who resonates with a lot of people or who has that magic. I don't have the magic. Do you ever have that conversation with yourself? Oh yeah, totally, totally. And I think that, and I don't know, just the way publishing works is I feel like encourages that sort of, um, like in a way we all know that as much as one person and as much as you try to sort of be like the A student writer, <laughs> be like, okay, I'm going to do all the things they want me to do. And I'm going to have a social media presence and I'm going to, you know, go do readings and none of that stuff. It's fun to do. And it's really, really great to connect with readers. I feel like that is sort of the best part of having a book out. Um, but does it move the needle in terms of book sales? No. And they know that and you know that. And, um, and and really, you know, there's things that, especially if it's like a big five publisher, there are things that they can do that they do for some books and that they don't do for others, you know, and certain media placements and, um, you know, certain like levers they can pull that they choose to or they choose not to. And if they choose not to, I feel like fine, but then it's just unfortunate that then as a writer, you sort of internalize that. Like, Oh, I didn't do a good enough job. Just the book wasn't good enough. Or, you know, there was, there was no publicity, but still people, you know, there's so many, there's so many great books are published everywhere. How are people going to find your book if it's not anywhere, you know? Or like, I just don't have the soul. Something with my, something to do with my soul is just not big enough or resonant enough. I've thought about that. Like there's something yeah. fundamentally wrong with the core yeah. of me. <laughs> um, but here, here, let's, well, I, think that's like... well, I want to, I want to just make ourselves feel better for just a moment because oh, I can, yeah. I can imagine I have not lived this, but I can imagine that if you are one of those lucky few writers who has some mega success where like your book is like, you know, sprinkled with fairy dust and like it goes on to sell a bajillion right. copies. I can imagine the pressure that you must feel on subsequent books. Right 
to make sure the magic doesn't go away, to prove you're not a flash in the pan. You know what I'm saying? I can, I can that. Then yeah. you just have that psychological problem. So yeah, at least I don't have that. <laughs> yeah, no, I do think that's that's another real head game. Like, there's no way to not do this and and be in some sort of weird headspace. I think, um, and you have to have that weird combination of sort of. I, I think that every artist has, I don't know, a weird amount. You have to have enough ego that you're like, yes, this thing I'm creating is people should look at it and everyone should look at it and everyone should love it. And for me, that goes exactly hand in hand with thinking, oh, God, this is so horrible. I can't believe anyone's wasting people's time with this. It's so embarrassing. And both of those things are equally powerful, you know, Um, and they don't seem to contradict each other. Like they just live side by side. Yeah, and so then with this book, with Unseen City, it went through such a long process. You know, my agent looked at an early draft and said, I just, I don't know what to do with this. Um, You know, I think that everyone would have liked it had I been able to be sort of a commercial, sort of upmarket commercial women's fiction writer, which is something that I think is great. I'm just like, for whatever reason, every book I write is, I feel like they're all totally different and I just have to keep myself interested by kind of taking some creative risks. And I just like don't have it in me to be the kind of writer that I think earlier in my career sort of people wanted me to be. Um, not that there's anything wrong with being that kind of writer. I just like couldn't figure out how to do it. Like it's just not what I can do. And this book is, I think more literary. It sort of is, um, I don't know. There's things about it that, uh, that, so I had to sort of like start from scratch, look for a new agent, sort of think about, is this worth it? Is this book worth it? Should I just scrap it and start over again as I've done before? And then, um, I had actually worked with Julie on a children's book that I wrote that she tried to help me publish. And that too was sort of two in between genres to find a home. Um, And then the same thing sort of happened with Unseen City. So she um, was, you know, trying to sell this book that's sort of a cross of genres, which I feel like I love as a reader and I think other readers love, but I think marketing departments of publishing houses hate because it's hard to talk about. What is it? Is it historical? Is it supernatural? Is it literary fiction? Is it funny? Is it sad? What is it? Um, and, And then that plus knowing that I sort of have this bad sales record and on and Julie, okay, so she went through a huge revision with me. She is amazing. She gave me like notes completely in my love language where she was like, do you think that, I feel like you're too worried about plot and I think that you could, you can do this thing with language and character and you should just do that. Just go there. Just be as weird as you want to be. I was like, I love you so much. Thank you. Um, And yeah, so then like I'm not even sure I totally understand what this means, but the note we got from a lot of editors was, I liked this book, but I can't tell if it's commercial or literary, and I don't know how I would sell it, which I don't, I know what that means, and I don't know what that means, but, um, and honestly, it took a year, It's and, she, and it, all of the persistence and grit was entirely on Julie's side, you know, there were times when I was like, let's just forget it, just forget it, and and she, but she really believed in this book in a way that I didn't <laughs> after a certain point. And um, 
And then, yeah, Red Hen Press took it and and Julie sort of said, this is the perfect home for this book because they're they're an indie press, but they're a big indie press. And they and, and reading the Red Hen Press catalog, I feel like it totally feels like my literary home. You know, every book they publish, I'm like, yes, this is my kind of book. I love this book. Um, and they have been delightful to work with. They're so it's like a it's like being welcomed into a family, which feels extremely different than you know commercial publishing. But which where where it's like yeah. you know you feel cool for like a week, and then they're like done on to the next. It's like over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like they... I will never forget with my first book having a conversation with the very sweet like you know twelve year old publicist who was assigned to my book, and you know it was my first novel, and I was so I don't know just what can I do and. I remember talking to her the book the week the book came out so it was an imprint of crown and um and she was doing i think publicity for like all of crown or something and she said i i, I know i'm so sorry i've been so busy with pat buchanan's book this week that i just don't have a lot of wavelength for your book and i was just like what the hell <laughs> like knowing that i'm sure whatever pat buchanan's book was was you know paid my advance you know like i get that that's how commercial publishing works but still it's just so demoralizing when you're like a pure of heart fiction writer and you're like here's my special little novel <laughs> right right well you know i think there's like lessons i say this a lot on this show but it only takes one like you, you know you, you can that's go true. through all sorts of rejection you can have to sit around and be patient and wait for a while. You know, there's all sorts of different ways that this happens, but ultimately right. it takes like an agent who believes a lot of times. Yeah. It takes persistence on the part of the author and it takes a publisher who believes as well. And your book exactly. has been getting great reviews, um, you know, and it's out in the world. It's published beautifully to the average person who picks it up they have no idea that there's all this backstory that's all that matters right right and you know I, I don't mean to say that like a good review or any kind of review validates or invalidates uh the merits of a creative work but it's just a it's like it's a lesson you know it's a lesson that right. you know there might be these these big publishers who have financial pressures that they're dealing with that force them into you know, judgments or decision-making processes that really don't have, and at the end of the day, anything to do with the inherent quality of a work. Um, right. You know, it's also subjective, and I think that, you know, the the way that I or the place that I try to wind up in after I go through all these like mental gymnastics mm-hmm. is just find a way to shut yourself off from the world and just do right. your work. Just do your work. That's right. That's like, right. That's it. That's right. And your work is the writing. And it's hard to remember that sometimes, but your work is the writing and is the book. And then someone else's job is to publish it and they're good at their jobs and they'll do that part. And then um, it really does help to have like someone in your corner. For me, it's my agent who's just like, you're doing great. Everything's okay. This I really, man, she's this this poor woman she's so amazing she's also she's like part therapist in a way that i think a lot of agents are you know she's she has to field like texts and and emails that are like oh is this okay and she's like it's good but she can you know it's like someone who is a little bit of remove from it can have sort of more faith in in the work than when it's so close to you kind of yeah i don't know but yeah and just to say i'm so grateful to the nervous breakdown for making it a book club 
pick. I've, I've already heard from a couple readers who read it that way and just felt like moved and, and reached by the book in some way, which is the best. I mean, that's the best. That's the only reward truly. <laughs> um, and it's, it's just the best. And, and it all weirdly feels like it's kind of for the best. Cause this is a, a just weirdly apt historical moment for this book to be existing in. And, I just feel like all of these things aligned in a weird way. That's but, awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Well, so thanks for that. Yeah, no, it's our pleasure. Happy to uh, shine a light on it. It's great to talk with you uh, and to get to know you a little better. I was going to tell you this at the top of the show, but it's a good place to end. Like, you have a uh, mark of distinction as the first guest on this show who I mistakenly thought had already been on the show. Like, that's how <laughs> many. That's how many. <laughs> So many podcasts I've done. Like I feel like because we, I think we published you at the Nervous Breakdown years ago. Yeah, yeah. You've That's just right. been you've been in my like digital orbit, and I was right. like, oh yeah, I've talked to Amy before. We're gonna have her back on. And then like, yeah. I was like looking through the archives. So I was like, where's Amy's episode? And I was like, oh my god, I haven't talked to her. Like we deleted it cause it was so bad. <laughs> Whoops. I'm just you know it's a premature senility, but I was like you know for some reason I thought we had already talked and knew each other, but That's it's really funny. It's delightful well, to but... actually talk with you. Yes, you too. And I feel like right, like I've been a part of the nervous breakdown um, extended family for such a long time. I feel like it's like yeah when when. I was allowed to write on the nervous breakdown. I was so excited. I was like, I've made it. I've made it in the literary internet. I love the uh, nervous breakdown. Well, it's, so, uh, it's I nice always to say, still be here. It's a nice, uh, I think if it, the site has anything going for it, I mean, aside from longevity, it's been around for almost like more than 15 years now, I think, or yeah. almost 15 years is the, I think the name of it, like it's grown into its name. I feel like the cultural so moment that we're good. in now. Yeah. That's right. Oh my God. And Sorry. Do you know about the weirdest nervous breakdown Unseen City coincidence of all, which is that, so Kimberly Weatherall, sure. if I'm saying her name right, who was, she was an editor for the nervous breakdown, right? And a contributor and sure, yeah. great nervous breakdown person. Um, so she narrated half of the audiobook of Unseen City. Did you know this? No. Isn't that bananas? Well, she has, I want to say she has a theater background or some sort of acting she background. She does, yeah. Yeah, and now she does audiobooks. Um, and it just, it felt like a perfect, I don't know, like full circle early aughts internet moment um, <laughs> to have her be narrating the audiobook. Like, of course, it's just, we're all helping each other out here. That's how it happens. But yeah, she's just... so great. Awesome. Well, uh, Amy, <laughs> congrats again. And uh, do you have anything else that you're working on? I mean, I don't mean to put, I know you're supposed to just enjoy, hopefully, the publication of this one, but writers okay. are always writing. Do you have another book in the works? Yes, I do. I have um, so many books in the works. I, I, there's a, a novel that my agent has now that is done, maybe, if she tells me it's done. Uh, that in theory would be the next book. That's an it's an epistolary novel about a a novelist who sort of disappeared, and then somebody is trying to find her again, see if she's still alive, and sort of bring her back into the world. Um, Not autobiographical. <laughs> no, she's a genius, universally beloved. <laughs> I used my imagination. <laughs> um, and then the other, the character who's trying to sort of find her is a young sort of hungry web editor 
also nothing like me. I use my imagination completely all the time. Um, God. And so there's that. There's a, a nonfiction book that I've sort of been pretending to write for a long time about extremely long-term projects that is becoming its own extremely long-term project. So I'm just going to pretend that that's part of the thing is that it's supposed to take forever to write because it is taking forever to write. Um, What's that one? What's the nonfiction? Well, so sometimes I call it the long haul and sometimes I call it how to keep going. And I think that there's like two versions of it and I, I still don't know which version is going to kind of win out. Um, there's like one version of it that's just about extremely long-term projects and sort of how people keep going with them. And I've done a ton of research and written two chapters of it. Uh, one is about Dorothy Richardson. Do you know her? She's this modernist novelist who wrote like a 12 volume book over the course of 70 years or whatever. She's nuts. That's great. Uh, I think those kinds of projects are awesome. And I, I'm thinking like fun, R- right? Richard Richard Linklater just popped into my head. Like yes, those, those time yes. movies. Like I feel like those are such cool projects. Right, yeah, right. Right. But then I got so excited about them and started spinning out. And that book, the notes for that book, that book would be, you know, 10,000 pages long if I wrote it about all the different long-term projects I got excited about. So I'm still trying to sort of focus it. And then... But more recently, I've been thinking maybe it's more like, here, you tell me, tell me, tell me which one to write. Um, Maybe the version of it that makes more sense is the how to keep going version, which is more sort of reader focused and sort of takes, it would be, I think, more fragmented and sort of take lessons from all of these different long term project people um, and sort of more about how the reader can sort of keep going like how do you keep going and and I feel like if it with a really long open-ended creative project but also just in this moment in time when the future feels uncertain like how do you keep making things I don't know which which book do you want to read I mean I can I'm, I'm gonna cheat and say like some sort of melding of the two you know I okay. think these kind the kind of book you're describing there's often like a really cool way to do a braided narrative yeah. yeah and I think I think I always love it when there's an interweaving of the personal with the third party, you know, where you're talking about your own personal interest in this or struggles with this. And then you're looking to heroes or heroines who serve as examples, you know, like Dorothy or Richard Linklater, whoever it is, you know, and um, that would be my suggestion. I think. Okay, I wrote that down. Yeah, I don't know. If if we can have a little Amy in there, (laughs) like just Amy, like unadorned, just like this is me, this is why I'm here. Oh God. Yeah, but I don't know if anyone wants that. But okay, all right, Uh, I'll write it and I'll send it to you and tell me what you think. Okay, deal. This really simplifies things. I really appreciate that. I couldn't figure it out. (laughs) So glad we got that settled. Um, Right, your political career. And my next book. This has been really productive. Awesome. Thanks. Well, such a pleasure to meet you over the over the line here Thank and uh, to talk with you. Congratulations on Unseen City. Best of luck Thank with all that so you have much. going. And uh, I will now let you go be a mom. Oh, good. I don't know if they've had lunch yet. Let's find out. All right. Thank you so much. This is so much fun. All right, folks, that is Amy Shern. Her novel is called Unseen City. It is available now from Red Hen Press. You can find Amy online at amyshernwrites.com. 
You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Amy Shern. She's also got an Instagram uh, and a Facebook, and she's on Goodreads. She's all over the place. Amy Shern, and the novel is once again uh, Unseen City. Go get your copy immediately. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to send in one of your uh, Where I Listen photos, you can include a selfie if you want, or not. Hashtag Where I Listen. You can also DM the photos on uh, Twitter, at otherppl, or on Instagram, at otherppl.podcast. The Other People Podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show is available for free, folks. More than 670 episodes and counting. If you like the program, if you listen regularly and you have the means, throw a couple of bucks in the hat over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Don't forget about other people gear. Just go to the show's website, otherppl.com. Click on the t-shirt in the left sidebar. This program also has its own app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It, too, is free. It's a free app. It's a good app. It's a high-quality app. Go get the app. My blog, is uh, the address is bradpocalypse at blogspot, or bradpocalypse.blogspot.com. bradpocalypse.blogspot.com. If that is uh, interesting to you. Next week on the program, uh, I can't say yet. Uh, I'm still not organized. How depressing is it that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died? God damn it. I can't even think about it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just too much. It's all too much. I'm going to get up. I know you're supposed to fight, but, you know, fuck. Fuck. <laughs>